Jen, and you're listening to A Thinker's Guide to the Beginning. In this mini preseason, you and I are focusing on who we are, why we're here, and what the hell we want to do about all of that. Together, I hope that we're going to savor the beauty and complexity of what it really means to be alive while we ponder the mysteries of your heart. I'm your host, Jen, a licensed professional counselor, MDiv earner, and all-around curious soul. My mythical lawyers want me to remind you that all the information in this podcast is most definitely not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. Today's podcast is sponsored by me and my voracious reading habit. Now until July 13th, you can enter for a chance to win my seven favorite books for the existentially curious. You can check out all the details in today's show notes. And I want to remind you that if you enjoy this podcast, to please do me a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. Okay, enough of all that business. Let's dive in. Today in our second episode, The Heartbreak. We're going to explore what exactly it is that I do in my day job and how the truth of what it means to be human is always more complicated than how it initially presents. The world has felt really, really complicated lately. This is not a new sensation for me. Things often feel complicated, or maybe not always complicated, but complex. And as I was reading the news and realizing that I was going to come sit down and talk to you listeners who were sitting somewhere in the future, I've been having a hard time taking myself out of the present moment. Life is really, really complicated right now. And it's complicated on a macro scale, complicated in the ways that things are coming apart at the seams, that life isn't what we thought it was. Or, on the other hand, life is how we always feared it was. Or for those of us who have lived in so much trauma and so much tragedy, life is how we knew it was, but wished that we could pretend it was different. Each week I meet with my own therapist and my clinical supervisor, my consultant, because I'm licensed, I don't technically need a supervisor. And lately, particularly during pandemic, I keep having this urge, this wish that they would start our sessions by asking me, or maybe not asking, but just saying, tell me about a complicated person. So I could talk about myself, I could talk about the clients that I sit with, I could talk about what I watch on the news, but that is just a fantasy I have in starting my sessions and neither of them start sessions that way. And I've never asked them to either. I I could, I just, I have that, that wish, you know, that somebody would just read your mind and know exactly what it is you want them to say to you. Life doesn't really work that way. I don't know if I've told you guys yet that I'm a psychotherapist. It sounds so pretentious. And I don't mean to be pretentious. In fact, I don't know that I am all that pretentious. Really, I'm actually more of a cheesy kind of person. On my website, which I just had like recreated for me, I call myself a professional heartbreaker, which is 
definitely cheesy, but in a lot of ways, I think that's what psychotherapy is. We all, all of us, keep so much buried and defended against that it's hard to get to our most tender or beautifully intricate pieces without breaking ourselves open. And thankfully, for me, at least, life does that a lot. It's really painful to watch life break open, particularly the way it has been today and last week, and I imagine in the weeks to come. But I'm often pointing out for myself and for others where the pieces have landed so we can begin together to figure out how to fit them back like a puzzle in which that we all hold a piece. Today, there's there's a lot of stories I want to tell you. And I'm soothing myself by reminding myself that I am going to tell you a lot of them when we jump into our, our first season, our first deep dive into into the apocalypse. But today, I'm just wanting to tell you a story about a complicated man. And it's a story that's based somewhere between fact and myth. It's not a story of a real person, because that would violate the confidentiality and the privacy of not only the clients I know, but the people I know. And so the story that I'm going to tell you is of a fictive person. But if you're a reader of novels or a lover of stories, you know that just because a person is fictive, it doesn't mean they're not profoundly real. So even though this person, he, has never lived, and I suppose if he did, I wouldn't have ever met him, I'm, I'm telling you a story of a waking dream, or as psychotherapists like to call it, a case study. Psychotherapy almost always starts with a call. And I don't mean we start psychotherapy on the phone, but we start with a phone call to, to meet each other, to feel each other out. And on this phone call, Oliver tells me that it's been seven years since it happened. And he just moves right on as if I know what it was and what was happening in his life seven years ago. I'm curious, but there's something in me that says, don't press too hard. He'll run. And... I don't know if that's true or not, actually, in retrospect. There's times that I wish I had. I wish I had pressed my curiosity. <sighs> but to be honest, I don't know that it would have changed the trajectory of the work we did together. On the phone, he's this really interesting mix of guardedness and surprising openness. He tells me that he's 36 years old, he's single, and then he makes a really interesting comment of how he had one near miss of a marriage. One near miss of a marriage. What the fuck does that mean? I think to myself, and I write it down, misspell it, notes tries to correct it, but I, I just keep on moving, holding in. What does it mean to miss a marriage? What does it mean to miss the person and who was the person? And then I realize I'm not listening to him and I need to home back in. He starts by telling me that he's afraid of commitment I'm a serial monogamist, but I can't really seem to find someone really worth keeping long-term. I'm dating, but I can't seem to find anybody I really want to be with. And lately, I just don't feel at home in the dating scene. I just want to settle down. But something isn't getting in the way. My sister, who I later learn is his younger sister, Catherine, thought therapy could be helpful. This 
is the presenting problem. It's something therapists, I assume, many of us, at least I am, are searching for in this first phone call. What is it that this person wants to work on? What is the problem? Where have things become misaligned? And, and certainly we could stop there. I never want to though, because often the presenting problem is, is just the decoy duck. And if we were able to go deeper, there's this whole wide body of water of things that hold that duck up. Metaphor's not totally working, but these problems are a decoy problem. In many ways, it's not that they're not real and they don't exist, but they're only the edges of what's really going on. And so I jot another note down on my notes app as we talk, and I write attachment wounds with a question mark, thinking, I wonder why. This person, and I learn more about him on the phone call, is very skilled, very talented, clearly very intelligent, does quite well for himself. There must be something else going on other than he just can't find somebody he wants to settle down with. Later, not on the phone call, but later in our work together, I start to discover many of the roots of what might actually be going on for him. He strikes me, though, on the phone call, and it's only a sense, it's only my my intuition, my guess, that he feels lost and alone. He feels really, really lonely. And I, I wonder to myself, because I find out he's a transplant, his sister lives in Chicago, he's from the Midwest, I wonder if he longs to go home again, but is uncertain of how to get there. The phone call's only 20 minutes, so we have to talk about fee and scheduling and, and all of these things. So I only get pieces of who Oliver is. But I like him. I like him and I'm excited to work with him. And he seems to like me okay. And so we set up our first appointment. Therapy is a journey. And it's, it's a fun journey, but it can be a little boring sometimes. I think people don't always realize that therapy is not just hitting all of like the great tourist hot spots of your psyche. There's a lot of trudging through. And I don't mean to say like therapy is boring. We just sit there in silence. There's always something interesting to talk about. There's always something meaningful to discover and to explore. But a lot of therapy is ordinary. It's about discovering what is extraordinary in your ordinary. And often the beginning of this journey, we start with this hesitant curiosity. We circle each other. I'm curious and often he, Oliver in this case, but most clients are really uncertain. And I learn things little bit by little bit. And I, I begin as I often do. I am trying to discover who Oliver is and how I often understand who people are is understanding who their people are. So we talk about his family. We talk about the geography of his life. He, as I mentioned, is 36. He's a cisgender Caucasian male. He works as an immigration lawyer, which is interesting. He had kind of more professorial vibes to me on the phone. He uses lots of interesting words, vivid words. He speaks in what feels like a lot of poetry. And as I get to know him, I have this sense inside that he's like, he's like a turtle. 
I can feel the tenderness lurking somewhere underneath his solid exterior. And I, of course, want to get to the tenderness. I love to get to the tenderness. But we're not there yet. So I ask about his family. I ask about who were his people growing up. He tells me about his mother, Anna. She grew up in the States, but she was born in Iran. And he tells me how he used to love to ask her all these probing questions. She would sit with him and she would think about them and she she would come up with, he said, sometimes very bizarre answers. Answers that didn't make sense in the moment and didn't often make sense even longer term. But there felt like there was a mystery, magic, wisdom in those answers. And he told me that my mother loved me with all her heart. I learned more about his mother, and I know it's a trope, but primary caregivers really do matter when we're talking about people having trouble with attaching, of being in relationship, of connecting, of really forming intimate, close, vulnerable relationships. Mothers are often at the core. And so the more I discover about her, the more she starts to sound a bit like a waif, like like a waif who becomes a princess, who, who was fragile, who was delicate, and who could be wildly explosive when she became angry. He told me that his mother died of heartbreak, which was odd and poetic, but starting to fit in what I knew about Oliver. And he he told me over time that her heart always seemed to be breaking, that much in life broke her heart. And later in our journey, not quite in this hesitant curiosity phase, he told me that he swore his would never break. Again, interesting. I put it in my notes. And not just my notes in my uh, electronic health record, but my notes in the my heart that I carry, these books that I hold of each client who I'm privileged enough to read their story with them and find ways to retell their story. His mother was important, is important, even if she was no longer living. His father, on the other hand, Leonard, was a perpetual underdog, I immediately do not like his father when Oliver starts to tell me he just sounds so annoying. And I know I'm really revealing a lot to you that I I do. I hold judgment sometimes of these characters in people's stories. I try really hard sometimes to hold it to myself. But there are times that it's just like, God, that person sounds awful. And, And Leonard was seemed, at least, I never met him, he seemed the kind of awful that you could never quite put your finger on why. It wasn't that he was a villain. He just, he just didn't add much. Oliver describes his dad as feeling really ambitious, but he really was just a daydreamer. And a a daydreamer that was more focused on sort of his own self-aggrandizing fantasies. His dad worked in the family business, which was long-standing and did very well, but he always dreamed of being anything but what he actually was. It takes me time to have empathy for Leonard. I come around over the few years that Oliver and I worked together. And actually, in retrospect, when I'm thinking about it, I come to have empathy 
for Leonard as Oliver comes to have empathy for his dad. He had a lot of anger and a lot of frustration at his dad. And again, sought to be his dad's opposite, just as he sought to be his mother's opposite, not going to be heartbroken and not going to be stymied in ambition. His younger sister is definitely my favorite of that family, minus Oliver, of course. He tells me, oh, I only call her Catherine when she's being a real pain in the ass. He always called her Kitty, which was her childhood nickname, although nobody else calls her that anymore. She married young, and then she was widowed young. Her husband OD'd, which he tells me in a roundabout way when I ask about her suggesting he go to therapy. He shares that, well, Kitty did a lot of therapy. She thought it would be good for me. And I, of course, want to know, why did Kitty do a lot of therapy? What was she doing a lot of therapy about? It's like, well, I mean, her husband died, which was awful. It turns out he was a a pretty regular heroin user, a victim of the opioid epidemic. So Kitty lived in Chicago when I first met Oliver, but she eventually moved out to L.A. and began to work in fashion. Oliver loves her so much. She's a really reliable person for me to go to when we're talking about having compassion for self or taking better care of himself, all of these pieces of like self-nurturance. If I talk about Kitty, would you ever treat Kitty that way? Oh, of course not. Of course not. And she, she loved him just as much, I think. She came and visited him once. I didn't get to meet her, but I got to hear about all the places he took her out to eat. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So that was his family. He also had several significant relationships, which is one of my favorite things to do with people is to go back and chart, like, who are the people that you have been drawn to, whether in friendship or in employment, or really most significantly in romantic relationships. He tells me a fair amount about what he describes as his latest fling. She's too young for me, John. But she's different. I think I like her. I'm not sure. (laughs) Her name's Nicola. She's 31, and she's a social worker in the D.C. public school system. They date for a while. They don't date for the whole arc of our relationship. But Nicola was really significant in helping Oliver discover what it was he was really drawn to. In this sense, not in a romantic relationship, but in terms of what he wanted to do with his life. Again, though, I'm getting ahead of myself. It's hard to tell a case study. So that near miss, that lucky miss, that that almost marriage, was Oliver's childhood and college sweetheart. I guess not totally childhood. They met in middle school. I think that counts. Her name was Penelope. They broke up six months after his mother died by suicide, seven years ago. He said to me, and it was the first time he teared up with me, my mother kept us apart, even in death. Hesitant curiosity is just the first part, though. Finding, exploring a person's geography, mapping out the parameters, it's only the first part. And in some ways, it's the easiest part. It's understanding who, what, and where. The meat of therapy is the why. Why... Why are you the way you are? And not in a 
Michael's got to Toby on the office kind of way, but a, a real curiosity. Like, how did you come to be this person? How, how is it you are you and not somebody else? And we discover as we start to lean into the whys of why you are the way you are. And also, what is it? Who is it you want to be? We start to meet the defenses. And for Oliver, intelligence was his armor of choice. It was both his defense and a weapon. And he was tough, you guys. I would move to get closer and he would block. His intelligence would come up again and again and again. And while it was certainly a gift, it kept me at arm's length. And so we did the work of therapy. We chipped away slowly, and I discovered underneath all of that intelligence was plenty of irrational shame. And then that form of anxiety that so often masquerades as ambition. And we chipped away, and we chipped away, and we chipped away. And we never really rid ourselves of our defenses, but we do eventually learn how to WD-40, the locks we keep on our heart, We discover the keys to open ourselves up, even if we choose to lock it back up again. Eventually, we arrive at the heartbreak. Everybody has a heartbreak. I've never met a person who doesn't. They come dramatic and they come small and secret, but they're always there. So we dig more. I find out that him and Penelope broke up six months after his mother's death not six months before, which had been my assumption, just the way he had phrased it. And so I dig and I I ask, and he finally shares with me that he had cheated shortly after his mother's death with a woman named Callie who he worked with. I was just helpless, Jen. I just wanted to feel loved. It was her lucky miss, though, not mine. We continue to explore, and I I learn that Callie is very similar to his mother. Crueler. Sharper. But with the same relational feel of, of passion and storytelling and mystery and how she responded. She was the queen if his mother was the waif. And so he broke up with Penelope. I didn't want her to know what I had done. Love is complicated. I told him, love for his mother, for Callie, for Penelope, and now maybe even for Nikki. I said to him, your mom's death really crushed you, even though you went on. And he responded, this is the part where we blame everything on my mother. I said, not blame, acknowledge. We We spent a lot of time in the heartbreak. It felt like a lot of time, at least to him. Months and months and months, he would come in and say, Jen, are we ever going to be through this? And I said, I don't know, Oliver. I hope so, though. And slowly over time, it's not that we got through the heartbreak, but we started to discover healing. And this is where stuff really starts to feel repetitive, from the outside at least. We go over the same stories, with occasional new pieces poking out. And therapy... It really is just not full of epiphanies, although they're great and so exciting when they appear. 
but it is full of stories and characters and all these really interesting tidbits. And so together, Oliver and I explored the stories again and again, looking at them from different angles, asking different questions, and eventually feeling different feelings about each of them. Oliver had many pieces of work, but that first big part was exploring of what it is like to have a mother such as his. Underneath all of his love for his mother and these women, the truth was more complicated. It always is. He alternated between hating her and loving her, which is what he often did with the women in his life. He longed to draw close, but when he was young, his mother, for many, many reasons, drew away. Anna, his mother, I discover, was beautifully intuitive and excruciatingly fragile. And somewhere along the way, Oliver denounced his own beautiful intuitiveness, his own ability to weave a story in ways that would make you cry in honor and in defense of never, ever being that fragile. Except he was in therapy, and therapy is about learning to be what you've cut yourself off from being. And so over time, he begins to make changes. They're subtle, but significant. He's kinder to himself. He uses less of what we call his lawyerly tone. He doesn't treat himself as judge and jury condemning the victim. He, as I mentioned before, because I got ahead of myself, breaks up with Nikki. I loved who she was, but not who she was. Does that make any sense? He asked me later on in our work together. And I thought it did, but I wanted him to be more explicit. So I said, tell me more. And he did. He explained how he loved what it was that Nikki did, like who she was in her life, how kind she was to herself, how she engaged in life, and and really what she did for a job. He didn't want to be a social worker. Jen, God forbid that I become a therapist. But he did want to be in school. He did want to teach and to learn and to engage with young minds. And so he shared with me that And law had seemed like the right thing to do at the time. It was what he had been encouraged to do, what seemed safe to do, but he had never felt particularly passionate about it. And we explore what it means to be passionate about something, what it feels like to be steadily concrete in love with what one does. And in the back of my mind, I thought, and with another person as well. And so he pursues getting a teaching certificate. So we've reached the goal in some ways. He has found something to be in steady relationship with, to be a long-term monogamist. It was a job, not a person. And I say to him, oh, Oliver, we've met some of your goals of when you first came. And oh, my heart is breaking when I say it because I really like to pretend that therapy will go on forever. My own attachment is, is wanting people to stay. But therapy does not go on forever. And all relationships end, sometimes by choice, sometimes by circumstance. And sometimes by something that feels like a little bit in between. Oliver comes in two months before we end. And he tells me, Jen, I'm going home. We had worked together for years at this point, And I feel like crying and I'm not sure if it's sadness from knowing that I'll miss him 
or delight in knowing that he's finally doing what I suspected he had been longing to do from the very beginning. He tells me that he's gotten a teaching position at a private school in Michigan, close to where he grew up. And so over the next two months, we process what this means, what the end of our relationship means, but also what he has discovered in our time together. My mom's legacy, he tells me one day, was her ability to craft and weave a story. I have that too. And I smile, I'm just so delighted with him. And I ask him, well, what are you going to do with that? And he gets bashful and he says to me, well, I started to write my own novel. And he's told me about it in bits and pieces of story. I didn't realize he was already writing it. And I ask in a sort of a therapist-y way, I say, we know if, if you ever were comfortable in letting me read it, I would love to read it. And his response was, you'll just have to buy it along with everyone else. He's single as we end our time together, but really happy being alone for the time being. I might start dating once I get settled back in. I kind of like being alone. It doesn't feel as scary as I thought it would be. He says to me, I'm, I'm glad I came. I think I was at war with myself before, but now weirdly I feel at peace. That, I told him, was the most poetic way I'd ever heard anyone end their time in therapy. And he grinned. Oh, it was a shit-eating grin, you guys. And he looked younger than I'd ever seen him and shrugged. Well, I am a writer after all. I'm continually intrigued by how many of the journeys I take with my clients all seem to be about figuring out, understanding how to go back home again. When home that was is just no longer an option. Oliver is no more real than Odysseus of the Odyssey was, which is to say he is profoundly real, just not perhaps in a way that can be recorded in all the various charts and papers we have to keep to prove a person's identity. It often seems to me that novels, epic poems, and the various plays for screen and stage are all just elaborate case studies, trying to illustrate to us what it means to be human from that writer's unique point of view. It's a good question, too, but a complicated one. Because what does it mean to be human spins out on to all of these other questions. Like, what does it mean to be alive? How ought we to live? How ought we not to live? What defines us, divides us, melts our hearts, breaks them? Who are we? And how do we know who we actually are? And what do we do with all of these dangling parts of self, life, and others? And does the story ever come together cohesively? Or does it remain this beautiful, incomprehensible mess that just keeps going page after page after page until the end? These are the things I think about when the world is particularly complicated. When the complexity of race, of illness, of empathy, of selfishness, of politics, of police, of all of these things, and the list could go on and on. This is what I think about. And I, I wonder what you think about. How do you make sense of your own complexity and the complexity that is mirrored throughout the world? Do you pretend to be simple? Or do you revel in the tangle of self? I genuinely would love to know. But that's all we have time for today. 
And if this was a therapy session, I would ask you what today was like for you. And I would genuinely want to know. My clients fucking hate that question, though. So until next time. Dude, thank you so much for hanging out, exploring your depth, and I hope allowing yourself to be challenged to go deeper in understanding what makes you and your inner world tick. I'd love for you to head over to therapyforthinkers.com slash reading habit to learn how you can enter for a chance to win my seven favorite books for the existentially curious. Remember, you only have till July 12th, 2020 to enter for your chance to win. As always, I'd love for you to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you like to collect all your podcasts. If you're gaining value or you just really like the podcast, I'd love for you to help me spread the word. As G.B. Stern said, silent gratitude isn't much use to anyone. If you're an Instagrammer, feel free to screenshot an episode, add it to your stories, and tag me at Therapy for Thinkers. If you are not a social media person, totally okay. Just share it with somebody you care about who you think might enjoy it. All right, that's enough rambling for today. I'll catch you guys next time.